This is Judaism Unbound, Episode 70, After Ultra-Orthodoxy. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofus. And we are here today with writer and author Sholem Dean. Now, I have to say, with all due respect to our previous guests, there is not a guest that we've had to date on Judaism Unbound that more members of my family have been more excited about. Many members of my family have read Shulam Dean's wonderful National Jewish Book Award winning memoir, All Who Go Do Not Return, about his life growing up and living in the Hasidic community, the ultra-Orthodox community, uh, until well after his marriage, until well after he had children, and then over time realizing that this wasn't the right community for him, and eventually having to leave that community. It's a very poignant memoir, a very painful memoir, but a wonderful book. I should note that the book is available as an audiobook, where Shalom Dean is narrating the book. So that experience is even more poignant, and it's especially interesting, I think, to people who listen to podcasts that uh, books are available on audio. So we really encourage you to go out and read that book. Prior to writing that book and prior to leaving the Hasidic community, Sholem Dean was known, but not by name, as the author of the blog Hasidic Rebel, where he wrote about the doubts that he was having in the Hasidic community and his thoughts about the community that he was living in and then after he left. Sholem Dean now writes regularly for The Forward and other publications, and he is also a board member of an organization called Footsteps, which helps formerly ultra-Orthodox Jews, people who have left the ultra-Orthodox community. It helps them transition to life outside of the ultra-Orthodox world, and I know that's something very important to Shalom, and we're going to discuss that in our conversation. So without further ado, let me welcome Shulam Dean to Judaism Unbound. Shulam, it is so great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that. Shulam, we want to focus today mostly on what happens after somebody leaves ultra-Orthodoxy and what challenges there are and what opportunities there may be for formerly ultra-Orthodox Jews to get involved with other dimensions of the Jewish community. But before we do, for those listeners who haven't read your book, I was hoping that you could just talk a little bit about the story that you recount in the book, about how you grew up and how you decided to leave and how you left ultra-Orthodoxy. I was raised within the Hasidic Jewish world in and around New York City. I spent my childhood in Brooklyn, in Borough Park. We were most closely associated with the Satmar Hasidic sect. Um, and then when I was a teenager, I sort of moved to the Skverers, which is a fairly obscure sect headquartered in New Square, which is an old Hasidic village in Rockland County, about 30 miles north of New York City. To, to get a sense of, of what the Skverers are like, it's actually interesting to think of the Satmers, who are a lot more well-known, uh, partially because they are a very large community, uh, but also because they are considered to be one of the most ultra-conservative, restrictive, some would say extremist groups within the Hasidic world. Um, so that's the Satmers. Now, the Skverers are the ones that even the Satmers think are too extreme. They're fiercely protective of their religious and cultural identity. Um, I think that is probably their most important value, and everything else follows from that. Um, and so they reject outside influences. They, uh, they try to make sure as much as possible that there is no infiltration of the outside world through media, through television, through movies, through newspapers, through the radio and, and popular music and things like that. Um, but largely that is their project to keep the outside world out. 
I ended up within this Skvera community. I was very attached to this community. I found it to be warm and welcoming and hospitable and generous. I should say my father died when I was 14. And so that was the time that I found the Skvera community. And in some way, it might have been uh, an effort to sort of find uh, uh, something or someone or some group to embrace me in the way that uh, that my father had and, and that I had then lost. Um, but at some point, I, I began to feel uh, disaffected with the Skvera community and disillusioned. It started with small things. I questioned uh, some of the basic principles that were taken for granted within the Skvera community, so things like the Rebbe. The Rebbe is general, generally the supreme leader within almost every Hasidic group, and so this applies to the Skveras too, and the Skvera Rebbe was generally considered to be extremely wise and, and, and uh, extremely saintly uh, and, and exceedingly kind and, and things like that and things that that eventually I began to realize are simply patently false. Um, that it, he was a very uh, a very flawed a human being and a very flawed human being, perhaps not more flawed than uh, the average person, but certainly, Certainly, uh, he did not seem to be any better. Things like that caused some disillusion, and that kind of gave me the psychological permission to start exploring a little bit about what the outside world has to offer. And so I describe in my book little steps that I took, um, turning on the radio in my home in the middle of the night, and then uh, you know becoming friends with a, a friend of mine who'd moved away from the village of New Square, the Square community, and and uh, he would give me information about uh, the world that he was joining. He was sort of moving into a more modern Orthodox environment. Um, and so I started exploring and questioning and studying and ended up at the public library and spending lots and lots and lots of hours. And uh, at some point I fell into the rabbit hole of modern biblical studies. That is that is a rabbit hole that was just for me. It was almost nothing like it. It was, for, it was first a search to discredit it, and then it was just once I realized that that there was no discrediting modern biblical studies. At least I couldn't do it, and and the attempts that I had seen to discredit it did not seem credible uh, and did not seem plausible. It just became this this obsession with understanding modern biblical scholarship, and the effect of that was uh, that that my faith fell apart almost entirely. But the fact was that I I was in this very restrictive community that harbored no dissent. Uh, there was no place to be a non-believer in this community. I'd also married very young, as was common within the New Square community. Uh, I got married when I was 18 to a, a girl that I'd never met. We would go on to set up what was generally a fairly typical Hasidic home, and we had one child and another child until we ultimately had five. And all of this was going on as I was slowly having this sort of process of having my faith more or less fall apart. Uh, you know, the options are on the one hand, stay with in, with my family in this community in which I would have to keep hiding 
who I really was and what I really believed and, and lying about myself. It, it's a real burdensome place to be in. I mean, people use the word authenticity a lot and people see, seeking their authenticity, which might be a little bit an overused word, you know, seeking your truth. Um, but let's just go with that for a second. It really felt like I was not living an authentic life. I was living a, I was truly living a lie, um, pretending to be a Hasidic Jew, pretending to believe when really I believed in none of it. Um, and it also put a very severe strain on my marriage, uh, which had been strained from the beginning because we were not very well matched. And so it's sort of, uh, uh, it, and, and at one point, the Skvera Bezdin, the Betdin, the rabbinical court in New Square, uh, they got word that I was, that there were rumors that I was a non-believer. And so they summoned me and they expelled me formally. Uh, from the community. Um, and so that takes you up to more or less the, uh, I'd say, two-thirds into the book or, or three-quarters into the book. And then, you know, the last part is my struggle to maintain contact with my children, um, which was a, a very traumatic process, trying to detach from that community but maintain my identity as a father and that was very painful and, and ultimately ended up to ended up being the most traumatic experience I could have imagined and the most devastating. I struggle because on the one hand, the book is so important in terms of the emotional impact of it and, and what you went through. And I absolutely recommend it to all of our listeners to read it. And and that's not where we're going to focus on in this podcast. And I want to sort of reassure those who have read the book and those who will read the book that that, that is an enormously important part of it. And, uh, you know, I apologize in advance for going analytical. But one of the things that, that I'm really interested in, in at this stage to, to just sort of talk through is, is the strategies that the ultra-Orthodox world and that the Hasidic world that you grew up in sort of used to keep people in it, right? I mean, that, and, and I'm interested in, in the extent to which, at least from your story, it seems like they've got a point, right? That, that, they're, try, that they're concerned that, that this way of living can't survive on its own merits or on its own power, that people would not stay in it if, if it were a choice. And so at least the strategies that I've heard you describe are to prohibit people from accessing knowledge that might call into question some of its verities, to, to throw out people who are not conforming to what they believe is the proper way to be, and to do things like encourage people to get married at a young age and to have children at a young age that kind of lock them in to this world that even if intellectually they don't feel it's right, they've made too many uh, investments and feel like it's it would be too painful. And your book demonstrates that, in fact, it is too painful for most people to be able to make the decision to, to leave it. And part of, I think, at least again, as, as I read your book, part of the way that you made that decision was to some extent it was forced upon you. And I'm just curious to the extent to which you think that those things are strategic choices that are being made intentionally by the leader, leaders of those communities because they understand that this is the reality they're facing and to what extent it's not 
quite as intentional as that. Right. Well, well, I should say I was hoping that you were going in that direction to ask that question because there seems to be a lot of confusion about that. Um, and, and I tend to fall on the side of it is, it is uh, I, I would say, something like 80% unintentional and 20% intentional. Uh, in other words, they are quite aware that what they're doing is preventing people from from leaving, but the but the primary purpose of most of what they said and what they put in place is not because they think that because they do this, people will have such a hard time. Um, they think because they do this, people will remain attached, but not because they would they would be so. Uh, apprehensive about leaving because they they know how difficult it is, but simply because they would they would understand the value of staying, uh, and they they wouldn't be led astray by outside influences. For the most part, I do not think it's intentional, uh, but I think it's a very strong side effect. Depriving boys and and young men of a secular education because of the primacy of Torah study and putting this great value on having large families, automatically those two things together create a structure of dependency. Because if you, if you, if you are not educated in ways that give you marketable skills and you have a large family to support, then from, from a, a very, very early point, you are forced to rely on the community structures uh, to get by financially. Just from simple economics, uh, you cannot move out of the community once you got married and had several and have several children. Uh, you are too dependent on the structures that are in place uh, to try to sort of get out of it, to break out, and to try to make it on your own. I know you're very involved in an organization called Footsteps, which works with people who are leaving or who want to leave or who have left the ultra-Orthodox world to try to help them smooth their transition out of that world and into the larger world. And I'm curious if you know from that experience or from your own personal experience, percentage-wise, what do you think we're talking about in terms of people who are living in ultra-Orthodox lifestyles and in those communities? How many people are actually actively having the kinds of thoughts that you had. You know, they have been exposed to this information and they are struggling. And And how many of them actually leave? How many of them are there but but feel trapped or for whatever reason don't leave? And, and then this is, I know, much more speculative, but what percentage, let's say, do you think of people that are living in the ultra-Orthodox world, if they were exposed to this information, like if they were... if going on the internet or watching television was more accepted in those communities and they were more exposed. How many of them do you think would say, oh, that's really interesting. I enjoy watching some of those movies, but I still really embrace this this life because we know people do become ultra-Orthodox, so it is attractive to some people. And how many of them would probably say, you know, uh, I've only been part of this world because I didn't know this stuff. Now that I know it, I, I probably would would not find this to be for me. There have been no solid quantitative studies done that would give us good information about numbers of people who leave. Um, so what I would also have to say, if we're going to talk about those who leave, we have to first define what it means to leave. There are people who 
remain within the community but stop practicing in very in very strict ways there are people who leave the community but remain observant in their own ways and often very halakhically observant but just don't want to remain attached to this community to me to say that someone left um, i define it as having done both of those having consciously and deliberately detached from their communities of origin and have also made a conscious and deliberate decision to stop practicing halachic Judaism or orthodox Judaism. The numbers, I think in absolute numbers, I think they're fairly significant. I mean, uh, the organization you mentioned, Footsteps, uh, currently has about 1,200 members uh, but serves a much, much uh, wider number uh, with sort of people who take advantage of services that that are open to non-members, I would calculate that Footsteps serves approximately 20% of the people who leave. If you want to say that, that Footsteps serves uh, 1,200 members, there are probably about four times as many who have left but are not Footsteps members. Uh, but we don't really have good data to be able to say that reliably. And so I, I have to add that caveat that it's simply my intuition from knowing so many people in what we call the OTD community, the off the derech community, uh, off the derech meaning off the path, off the path of observance, um, which is not a term that we've given ourselves. It's a term that was given to us by the uh, by the community who calls people who leave off the derech. Uh, and so I think it, it, it's sort of an act of uh, reappropriation, and, and we use that term, although I try not to use it in, in formal settings. But in any case, um, the, the second part of your question about if people within the community had access to information, would more of them leave? And I think the answer is probably not, because I don't think that people leave because of information. I think people leave because... They feel alienated from the world in which they're in. They feel uh, uh, some kind of psychological disconnect from, from, from the belief system, which is not the same thing as being a non-believer. Um, I think people leave because they have experienced traumatic experiences within that world that are related to the ideologies uh, within that world. Um, and so they reject those ideologies, and it might seem that they are leaving because of their ideologies, but really they are leaving because of the, the effects of those ideologies. And those ideologies might be something as simple as uh, because of the primacy of Torah study, every Hasidic boy beginning from you know age four or five and going until age 18 is tasked primarily with, with Torah study from very early in the morning until late in the afternoon or for someone past bar mitzvah till very late in the evening. Um, and for the most part, from, from about eight or nine years old, most of that study is focused on Talmud study. And Talmud study is notoriously difficult. It is, um, it's, it's in many ways arcane. It, it's certainly, uh, uh, it's certainly challenging even for, uh, for very bright minds, and this does not this this does not leave any room for people who are gifted in other ways, but not in Talmud study, 
to find expression for their gifts. So say someone is a musical genius, but just has no intuition for Talmudic logic, uh, has nowhere to go with that musical genius, or someone who is artistically inclined in, in some other way, or some people are just nonconformist in their own ways. Uh, the community does not allow for nonconformity. I mean, conformity, I would say, is probably the highest social currency in the Hasidic world when it comes to things like uh, doing shidduchim, uh, uh, creating marital arrangements. Um, and so I think people leave for those reasons rather than simply non-belief. And I think non-belief can lead to that profound sense of alienation and to that sort of psychological uh, uh, discomfort or, or, a psycholo- or a breakdown of some sort in, uh, in, in, a, in, in an emotional realm rather than an intellectual realm. But it could be precipitated by intellectual inquiry. Um, which, which in some sense was the case for me, um, but but I, I would never say that I left because I was in search of the truth, capital T truth. Um, that would simply be, I, 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 that would be dishonest on my part. But I generally don't believe that that's how human beings live and, and make decisions. I don't think we we're not mathematical computers. We don't decide on a certain you know we don't we don't do we don't have a system of logic that says this is the correct outcome and therefore this is the path we must follow i think we have psychological impulses uh that drive us for the most part and intellectual uh processes can lead to those to different psychological impulses um so a more direct answer to your question i think most members of the hasidic community uh, find that the community serves them well for various reasons. I think primarily there are three reasons. I would say the Hasidic community gives people meaning in a way that they feel very attached to. There's a, it's a, it's not only a belief system in the sense that it has dogmas um, and creeds, but it is also a system that tells you why you are here and where you're going and what is the purpose in life and what is right and what is wrong. Um, and, and that's very powerful. And I think that the, the second most important thing is uh, th- there's a structure to life. There's an order to life that people, um, or, or I should say many people, feel comforted by you know we in the out in in the broader world outside of a very regimented hasidic system uh you have to make decisions all the time about what to do what to how to behave what we're you know what's right what's wrong how how do you act in a certain situation Um, when you have a society in which your every move is guided in some sense either by law or custom or tradition of some sort, uh, it is in many ways, there's something to that for people who might feel lost without that, especially when you're raised that way. Um, And I I would say the probably the the third thing and probably the most important thing is uh, the sense of community that you have in the Hasidic world. It's simply the sense of community that, that you have there is probably... Uh, it's probably not possible to create outside of an insular religious setting. I'm sure you know other insular 
religious communities probably are able to do something similar. You know, uh, I'm, I'm sure there are insular Christian communities and insular Muslim communities that are able to do that. Uh, but I don't think the secular world is able to replicate what the Hasidim have. Uh, maybe uh, some of the religious communities that exist outside the ultra-Orthodox world can can get something of it, but but it's I think it's really difficult, especially in an urban setting where this where, where life is so fast-paced and uh, there's so much indifference to people outside of your immediate social circle and things like that. Uh, I think it would be exceptionally difficult to replicate that kind of community. And so I think people stay because that community is extremely powerful and, and it can't be underestimated. This is fascinating on so many levels for me, and I just appreciate so deeply the emotion that clearly comes into play in this and your ability still to look at these people and articulate very strongly the reasons why they would stay, um, even though you haven't. But I'm curious for those who don't, um, for those folks that you talked about, uh, I think you said the number 6,000 or so in the last decade, that do end up leaving. I'm curious about the the then what question. I'm curious. Um, and part of that is because I used to work um, at the Institute of Southern Jewish Life, uh, which is where the founder of Footsteps worked for a while. And um, I had a lot of conversations with her about some of these issues. And what's so interesting to me is the ways in which people do or don't, after leaving, connect to Judaism. I mean, I have way less experience with this than you, so I really want to hear what you've seen. But f as far as I can tell, there are many people who who leave ultra-Orthodox communities. And the tack that they take, which is totally understandable, is I'm kind of done with Judaism. Um, this this led to a lot of deep pain for me and deep alienation. And so the response is to not participate in any form of Jewishness or Judaism. And then I also meet other people who, who don't do that. Um, which I, I'd love to understand sort of what's at play there. And, and for the people who do connect to Judaism that either, either you would, I don't know how you, how you identify yourself, but also the people that you, that you know, like, are there particular trends or, or ways in which you see people who have left Hasidic communities latching on in certain forms and not others that perhaps we could learn from? Um, are there, uh, like I was always intrigued that somebody who left Chabad, I mean, still wanted. She like gathered us to learn some Tanya for a few weeks. Tanya, for those who aren't familiar, is the is the foundational text of Chabad. And so it was fascinating to me that even as she left, there was still this interest in connecting to something from it. So like I, I that's all. That's a big way of asking. Like what what is your experience with how people relate to Judaism? sort of after leaving ultra-Orthodox Judaism? And what can we as folks that want to build a more meaningful Jewish future learn from that? I would say number one first, just to get this out of the way. I, I don't think that those who leave the Hasidic world are very different from your average millennial Jewish 20, 25, 30-year-olds. In other words, I don't think that those who leave the ultra-Orthodox world are less engaged than young Jews across the United States. I, I get this question personally, and many of my friends get this question, why did you not become X? 
you know, a modern Orthodox person would ask, why did you not become modern Orthodox? Uh, a conservative person would ask, why didn't you join the conservative movement? And things like that. I mean, I even once, you know, I was a Skvera Chassid, and I once ran into a, a Satmar guy who once said to me, I don't understand. Why'd you have to throw it all away? Why couldn't you just become normal? Why couldn't you just become yeah. Satmar? And so... Um, so, so I get this question a lot, and I actually I wrote an essay called "Why I Am Not Modern Orthodox," um, the title of which, which was was a play on the Bertrand Russell "Why I Am Not a Christian." Um, but but setting that aside, the point that I made in that essay, and the point that I would make now, is that fundamentally, those those who leave the ultra orthodox world, especially those who leave in very thoughtful ways, those who've really sort of processed the important questions. It's not simply that they've given up observance. It's not simply that they've given up belief. It's that they've lost a kind of trust. They've lost the trust that you generally have in religious leaders and religious texts and religious traditions. And it requires a kind of trust. Every, every time you take on a certain lifestyle, a certain uh, uh, every time you take on a, a belief system, anytime you get into a car or into an airplane, you're trusting someone. Um, you're saying, I trust that the science behind this, this airplane is solid and that this is actually going to take me somewhere. And I trust that the pilot is going to lead me there. And, and we develop trust because whoever it is we're trusting has proven that they has earned their trust. When people leave the ultra-Orthodox world, essentially what they're experiencing is a breakdown of trust and authority. And all of those rabbis and teachers and their parents and, and their elders, all of the things that, that they'd heard from them their entire lives came up for, you know, they held them up and examined them and found them to be either untrue or lacking or insufficient. And so they said, okay, this is not true, or it's not true for me, and so I need to find what is true for me, and to then start trusting another authority, and, and just just taking on a, a, a different ideological system um, without having really examined it doesn't quite make sense to, to someone who's really gone through the process of thinking about what they believe and what they don't believe. Having said this, I, I have to say that there are many among us who do land within the Jewish world. I think they're not landing within what we would say are the traditional Jewish denominations. And I don't think we have to uh, dig very deep to find out why. Um, because if you go to many of these, you know, if you go, I've been, I've been visiting conservative shows across the United States and I, I see how empty many of them are and in what crisis they are. And this is uh, not me saying anything disparaging about the conservative movement. It is simply an observation of fact that most conservative synagogues across the United States are struggling. But but I think, I, I think something like Reform Judaism just seems so alien to someone who comes from an ultra-Orthodox world uh, that it, it simply has no appeal because it it seems to be so disconnected from whatever they've known in the past to be Judaism. But there are, I think, there are a fair number of Jews, of, of members of the OTD community who do find themselves engaging with Jewishness on their own terms. It is extremely common 
for people who left the ultra-Orthodox world to get together and celebrate Jewish holidays just with friends. I mean, there are Purim parties and Hanukkah parties and Rosh Hashanah gatherings and, and things like that. Uh, they they may or may not go to shul on, on Rosh Hashanah or on Yom Kippur, but I think they do engage with their with their Judaism, and I certainly do. Uh, I certainly personally, as an individual, uh, certainly engage with Judaism. I would say very deeply and very profoundly. I'm not an observant Jew in any meaningful sense, but I I am connected to certainly connected to Jewishness. To me, Judaism, Jewishness expresses itself primarily as a sense of kinship and a consciousness of history um, and, and a myth of shared ancestry and, and things like that. Uh, when I say myth, I don't mean untrue. I mean myth in a more technical sense, the, the idea of, a shared, of shared ancestry, which is obviously not historical or biological because we you know we're, we're we can't say that every jew is descended from abram isaac and jacob simply by virtue of the fact that we accept converts and and things like that but but in a metaphorical sense and in a mythic sense we we do have this idea of shared ancestry and i connect to that and i connect to the idea of peoplehood i i but i certainly i study jewish texts i i mean i have a chavruta every uh, monday night we learn masechet sanhedrin uh, my friend Ben and I, and this is simply because we'd spent so many years studying Gemara, studying Talmud, and so we continue to study Talmud. And so now we have a question of, you know, we, we are looking at a paradigm shift where, where Jews are moving away from what we might see as, as more or less two millennia of the rabbinic tradition. And so texts are starting to seem less relevant, but I, I think that it's important to still really engage with them on a on a deep level, and that is what I still do. So I'd love to hear a little bit more. I, I, I feel like we've been talking about the ultra-Orthodox world as sort of like a big old block. And of course, like any other large religious group, it goes through lots of shifts. Um, we know that in ultra-Orthodoxy, there's a commitment to maintaining certain norms from a few hundred years ago. But there also are, of course, internal you know, ebbs and flows that happen. And I guess I'm curious from your perspective, um, are there any particularly significant shifts that are going on in ultra-Orthodoxy that might be interesting for us who aren't Orthodox to look at and learn from? Because really, we haven't really had anyone on the show with too much of an in-depth perspective from both, I guess, an insider and outsider perspective on ultra-Orthodoxy because you've been each of those roles at some point in your life. You know, there's something to me that's happening within the ultra-Orthodox world that I think is an interesting guide or an interesting uh, an interesting model. And that is over the past uh, over the past two decades, there's been this incredible interest, this incredible uh, uh, this surge of interest within the ultra-Orthodox world in Breslov. Breslov being one particular Hasidic movement that historically was extremely fringy. Uh, it was, it, they were generally considered by most Hasidic Jews to be sort of completely out there with the with the idea that they never took a new Rebbe who, who died uh, uh, two centuries ago and, and they were just weird and strange and had a 
completely different philosophical position from most uh, uh, most Hasidic Jews. And certainly what we're seeing over the past two decades is a movement from mainstream the mainstream Hasidic community to to Breslov ideas. And that's we see that most in this massive pilgrimage every year to Uman in the Ukraine where where uh, the Rebbe of Breslov, Rebbe Nachman, is buried. And this is this is a phenomenon that is uh, that I, I think has not been commented on enough, not because it is that important in its own right, but because it shows you just to what degree things can shift. And things shift because uh, the way I see it, not so much on the power of ideas, but on the power of experience. I think that you know you can you can bring a set of ideas and, and a system of beliefs to a person and a person will say that's very nice and and you know it it it, it, it it's a, they're good ideas um but they and they might even be moved by them uh but i think the power of going somewhere and and experiencing something powerful with thousands of other people in song and dance and and in a very physical tactile way um, I think nothing compares to that. I mean, I've I've been part of the Hasidic world, and I I, I know that kind of. I mean, I, most people know what it's like to you know go to a rock concert and have and, and being transported in a way that was completely uh, they they were completely overcome with something. And and I think we will find more and more that such experiences will be created. Um, and they're not going to be created within what is the mainstream liberal Jewish world. And they're not going to be created within the rigid, uh, very uh, restrictive Hasidic or, or even the non-Hasidic Haredi world. They're going to be created in some space in between. Um, and I think it's going to come to, it's going to be the product of people from both of those camps coming together. Another piece that I'm especially interested in is the role that formerly ultra-Orthodox people and former Orthodox people of all kinds might play in reimagining, remaking Judaism for everyone, uh, really in, in sort of innovating and rethinking and reimagining. Because one advantage that they have is that they have the education, a deep Jewish education, which people who didn't grow up in these kinds of communities might not have. And so I'm wondering what you think about the particular possibility of formerly ultra-Orthodox folks taking a leadership role in the process of reimagining Judaism for everyone. I would say the most important thing and this also goes back to to your question, Lex, uh, from before. When you come out of an ultra orthodox community, it is and and look around at the world and and you you try to find what's out there for you and where just sort of where are your people? Um, I, I think that is probably the biggest question. That people who leave have, they they come out of there and they say, okay, you know, where are my peeps, so to speak? Where do I go from here? Who am I? Who who do I get together with? And the idea that they would join a community of Jews that is so unlike them, 
that, that might seem like them on the surface. It might seem like, okay, now you're a non-Orthodox or non-Haredi Jew and you're looking for, for a new people. Um, it, would, it would seem like the natural fit is in one of the existing communities. But for many, many reasons, it's actually not a natural fit. I think one of the reasons is that these communities do not necessarily realize uh, the particular needs of those who leave the ultra-Orthodox world. I mean, you know, if you take a typical ex-Haredi person and put him in a in a conservative synagogue where the rabbi maybe is is giving a uh, giving a talk about something that might be meaningful to his or her congregants. But to the person who comes out of the Haredi world, they know every midrash, they know every pasuk, they know every different take that that you can already find on it. Um, it's really hard for it's really hard to to find something within these communities that were formed, where the members were formed in such different environments. Um, I think that's one thing. I think another thing is that these communities simply. You know, it, it's not easy to find community. It's not – people have this when they relocate, you know, as, as a more or less lifelong New Yorker. I mean, I've I've spent most of my life in this area. I've often wondered what it would be like to pick myself up and leave New York and go someplace else. And I've asked people what that experience was like. And almost universally, people say to me, moving to a new city, moving to a new town, it was extraordinarily difficult to recreate a social circle, to find who are your people, who are what is your community. And so this is essentially what people who leave the Haredi world, this is what they're doing. They're relocating. And the most natural place for them to go is just to seek out others who've, who've gone on the same journey. And walking into a non-Orthodox shul uh, whether it's a you know a conservative synagogue or a reformed temple or, or, or something similar to that, simply doesn't press any buttons for them, for the most part. Um, but I I don't think that it has to be that way. I think that some of these communities could engage uh, former members of the ultra orthodox world by being a little more cognizant of their particular needs and their particular needs might be being made perhaps not as uh, judgmental about their lack of secular education, uh, being not so judgmental about the fact that they are in many ways of a different socioeconomic status of most American Jews who've had uh, college educations, or at least you know, high school diplomas, which most ex-Hasidic Jews certainly don't have, and most most ex-Haredi Jews, even if they're from the yeshivish world, uh, are not going to have that. And I think it also requires communities to understand that that those who leave the Haredi world are completely cut off from their sources of support in the past, and what they look for now in community. It's not simply a place to go to shul to daven. Um, it's a place that will become surrogate family. And most of these, most most Jewish communities, wherever you might find them, are not going to play that role because that's not what they're set up for. Because most of their congregants are not looking for that. And so that's why so many uh, within this broader community of 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 
those who leave the OTD community gravitate to places like Footsteps, which is uh, which is organized around community, around peer support, around uh, the idea that we've been through this together. And I would say also many other informal groups that exist, um, both formal and informal, online spaces. There's a very, very active Facebook group called Off the Derech that has several thousand members. Um, and, and people understand each other within that space. They, they know what, what they've been through. You know, different people come from different places, but, but there's a kind of shared language that, that, uh, is very comforting. The, the, there's a shorthand that you can fall back on and, and, and you don't have to explain what you've been through because people understand it. And I think that kind of community in the broader Jewish world simply, I don't think that it exists just yet. I don't think that the awareness is there. Um, but I wish it was. And I, I would say that there are some exceptions. I mean, places like, I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the New York scene, but there's a, a show called, um, there's a Jewish renewal congregation, Romamu, uh, here in New York City, which it so happens attracts a considerable number of the ex-ultra-Orthodox world. Um, I think partly that has to do with uh, the rabbi, Rabbi David Ingber's own past and his own experience with uh, ultra-Orthodoxy, which in which he'd spent some years. Uh, but I think it also has to do with the fact that Jewish renewal actually is doing something that is new and vibrant. And in many ways, I think it speaks to ex-Haredim because it, it, it resembles in many ways, the Haredi world. I mean, somebody once described Jewish renewal to me as an a, a amalgam of Reconstructionist Judaism and Hasidism, which, you know, I mean, it's, it's maybe an oversimplified uh, definition of Jewish renewal, but I think there's something to that. There's a, there's a vibrancy and there's a spirit, there's a, there's a joyfulness, there's a, a sense of melancholy when appropriate. There's emotion there, there's feeling, there's expression in ways that you're just not going to find in, a, in your average reform temple. Um, so I think that's also one of the reasons people gravitate to there. I mean, I, I just went this past Friday night, I went to Romamu for Shabbat services. I, I don't go regularly, but I will, uh, I'll fall in there every now and then. We'll look, have to look for you on the live stream in the future. Yeah, we've we've actually talked about that live stream uh, that Romamu does for their services through Facebook Live. We think that that's sort of a significant trend that they're helping to lead. But um, I have a question related to something you mentioned a little bit earlier, which is that for you, the concept of peoplehood resonates, and I I think I think a lot of people use the word peoplehood, and we do very we do a poor job generally defining it, and I, and. I, and I'd love to hear, from, and, and I think back to an episode we had with Yehuda Kurtzer, who spoke about, who spoke about how if, if we mean peoplehood in a deep sense, and if we really have this idea of a Jewish collective, he likes to apply what he called the B'nai Brak test, and what we could call the New Square test, maybe. Um, like, basically, with the premise being, if, to what extent are you really buying into the idea that not you you like to what extent is one really buying into the idea that the person that is at the polar opposite end is the per, the person who is in the most insular hasidic jewish community and the person 
who is, in my case, somebody who is very far away from that, like, are we really part of this same project? And I think that's a huge question. And are you more a part of the same project than, say, the people that are, you know, let's say for me, you know, a progressive millennial Jew, like, am I more a part of some shared project with that person in B'nai Brock or New Square than I am with a non-Jew who is part of a progressive political movement with me that shares a ton of my values and ways of seeing the world. And I'll be honest, like I, I, I largely lean towards like, no, I, I don't know that I am. And I still want to buy into this concept of peoplehood though, and this Jewish collective. And so I'd love to just hear from you what it, what it means for you to resonate with the idea of Jewish peoplehood, having really spanned such a massive part of that spectrum of what peoplehood is. I relate very much to that question. Uh, you know, I mean, I, and, and this goes, this also goes back to the question of why don't ex Haredim move into other parts of the Jewish world? Well, maybe they just don't see themselves as really part of the broader Jewish world because it's actually hard to sometimes make that, make those connections and say, okay, I'm from the Hasidic world and these conservative Jews are doing something that's not the same, but similar enough that there's a sort of natural uh, tie between them. And I think that's that's questionable. For me, my thinking about values and my thinking about the world and my thinking about my personal place in it is in a way that I, I cannot help refracted through Jewish texts um, and Jewish ideas. And so to me, the question of, of peoplehood, the idea of peoplehood, the idea of Am Yisrael, the idea of Klal Yisrael, is part of, is, you could almost say it's part of my wiring. It's hardwired within me to, to accept that concept, to know that that concept is real. But do I necessarily feel it when it's put to the test? Do I necessarily feel that kinship with Jews who live in, I don't know, some part of, some part of the U.S. that, and Jews that have not been practicing and, I think I do feel a kinship with them. I, I think I personally, I think I personally do feel a sense that these are my people. It's not always easy, um, but I think at the end of the day, there is something, there is something there for me, um, and it may not be there for others. And I think that ultimately, Jewishness, Jewishness is that. Do you feel that kinship or not? Um, and if you don't then that's fine. I, I don't judge it. But I think that is essentially what defines for people themselves whether they are Jews. You know, I mean, I I had a, uh, I once lived with a roommate who I, I was at first very happy when she answered, when she responded to my Craigslist ad for a roommate because she had a, uh, she, she was an African-American woman and she, uh, or I could see that from her profile and she had an Arabic African sounding name and and when she came, she told me her father is a Nigerian Muslim, and then she added, "But her mother is Jewish from the Upper West Side." Um, <laughs> and so I thought I was like creating diversity in my in my place when <laughs> I was just you know it wasn't quite that. Um, and she'd just gone on a birthright trip, <laughs> just, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so when I would ask her, "Do you identify as a Jew?" she would say, "Well, half." To me, the idea of half doesn't really exist. You're not, you can't be half Jewish, uh, just like you can't be half pregnant. But, but to some people, that does exist. And I think 
you know, people define their Jewishness for themselves. And I think largely it comes down to whether they do or do not feel that kinship. I am a Jew and I do feel connected. If I tried to disconnect, I don't think it would work. I don't think I would know how. As we veer towards our close, are there any other, are there any thoughts, micro, macro, anywhere in between about the issues that we've talked about today that you want to bring to the table? Um, We've really enjoyed having you on and hopefully we can do this again, but anything that you'd want to send our listeners away thinking about? I want, I I want the broader Jewish community to think more about the ultra-Orthodox world. And, you know, speaking about the B'nai Barak test or the New Square test, I, I often have this question, do does the broader Jewish community look to the ultra-Orthodox and say, these are our people? And do they care about what goes on in that world? And to some degree, I, I, I think that they are not looking closely enough at what's going on in that world. And there are people who are suffering in that world for, for reasons that, that are avoidable. Um, I think the broader Jewish community, first of all, should engage in an ideological debate with the ultra-Orthodox and point out the the ideological flaws or the philosophical flaws. I, I think the broader Jewish community generally is has, has taken a hands-off approach and said, you know what, we're, we're happy that there are some Jews in Bar Park or Williamsburg or B'nai Brak who are still carrying on a kind of sort of authentic tradition and we're we're sort of we're we're happy we're not them, but we're happy that they exist. Uh, and I think that's that's extremely problematic. Uh, but there are also very very practical ways in which the broader Jewish community is not paying attention. And one of them is, uh, you know, Hasidic boys do not get even a basic education. I have two sons, fifteen and seventeen, who cannot speak, read, or write English. At, you know, at most a first grade level. Um, and this is something that. You know, elected officials should be there. There are state mandated educational curricula for private schools that educate that elected officials are simply not enforcing in most places with large uh, populations of of ultra orthodox Jews. And you know, there's an organization called Yafed, which is run by a friend of mine that's trying to to change things. Yafed is uh, Young Advocates for Fair Education, um, and his name is Naftali Moster. And he's, he's, he's essentially running around New York City trying to ambush uh, city officials guerrilla style and with the video camera and saying, why are you not doing anything about boys in the Hasidic world who have to who, who are being raised to have 10, 12, 15 children, but are not even given the basic skills that they will need to be able to provide for them? And why are you not doing your job? And what is absolutely astonishing to me is that Naftali Moster and his and his wife Miriam are just two people alone running around trying to do this work to to affect change that really all of us should should care about and be concerned about and i think that this is the the you know there's no mainstream jewish organization that has come to assist him and you know i'm on the board of footsteps which is another organization that is trying to do things for those who leave that world and it's been really hard for footsteps to get support from mainstream Jewish organizations, because mainstream Jewish organizations want to know: is footsteps doing something to uh, uh, to is footsteps doing something about the Judaism of those people who come 
out of the Haredi world? And and that's an mm. absurd question when when you're talking about a population that is leaving a world that had them restricted and and footsteps is simply trying to provide a way for them to exist, not for them to is not worrying about their their spiritual uh, concerns is worrying about their material concerns and and so you know the broader Jewish world is concerned about their spiritual uh, st- status and and I think that's absolutely insane and so I think we really need a conversation about the responsibilities and the obligations of the broader Jewish world to those within the ultra orthodox world uh, for whom that world does not ser- whom that world does not serve well. And those who want to leave that world and have a really hard time doing that, um, I think the broader Jewish world should really care a lot more than they do. And, and I think this is a very basic question of, of human rights, of people having uh, the freedom to make choices and make choices that don't come with incredibly, incredibly difficult consequences. Uh, people losing family, losing access to their children, as it was in my case, uh, leaving a place with without the means to to uh, uh, for economic self sufficiency because they weren't given the basic tools to to even go out and and try to get a job. They don't even have uh, they don't have even the basic elementary school education, let alone a high school diploma, let alone the 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 skills and the knowledge and whatever you would need to be able to get into college and, and get a college degree. Um, and I think we should all be concerned about this. That I, I think that's such an important note for us to end on. And just thank you so much, Shulam Dean, for joining us today. It's been a fantastic conversation. Sure. It's been a pleasure. We'd like to close out the episode as we always do by encouraging you out there, the listeners, to be in touch with us. And there are a few ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can always check out our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can always hit us up via email at dan at nextjewishfuture.org and lex at nextjewishfuture.org. The last plug we like to make is that you can always support us financially with a donation, either a one-time or monthly recurring gift at judaismunbound.com slash donate. So thanks so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.